Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former Discovery execs Lauren de Villiers and Paul Pastor about the launch of their new Michael Eisner-backed streaming aggregation service, Stream, and Oliver and Old Barm Associates chairman Mark Oliver about his projections for 2021 and beyond. Stream is a new streaming aggregation service gearing up for launch this spring, founded by former Discovery Ventures Head of Product Lauren de Villiers, ex-Discovery Network's Executive VP of Strategy Paul Pastor, former Discovery Plus Exec Eugene Liu, and Walt Disney Imagineering's Thomas Wadsworth. Backed by a multi-million dollar investment from former Disney chief Michael Eisner's Tornante company, the firm's advisory board includes former CBS president Nancy Tellum, Disney TV distribution boss Ben Pine, and Twitter head of global operations Donald Hicks. De Villiers, who is chief executive of Stream, and Pastor, who is chief business officer, spoke with Ruth Laws about the venture. The name is um, a play on the Dutch word um, strewn with two O's. And so we decided to pull the O's out and put two U's, you know, as in, you know, streaming for you. So that's how we came with, came up with strewn. What makes you think that there is a demand for this kind of service? Because obviously it's an aggregator. And where did the idea come from? Yeah, so, well, the idea came from, um, you know, I've been working on a lot of large uh, SBOD platforms. Actually, all four of us have been. And, um, you know, we saw that there was a real need. It was like the, the sort of the top players in the market were um, are out there and they have the reach and they have the eyeballs. And then you're sort of dropped into this ocean of hundreds of other services. And that's just in the U.S. market alone. And um, we saw that there was a need to connect consumers to content that was outside of the big five. Because there's unbelievable Believable content in the marketplace today, you know, and Paul can speak to it, but we do see that um, in the market, aggregation works, right? It introduces consumers to new brands, new types of content that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And so we really felt like there was a space in a market for this type of service. Yeah, and I would just say that to add to that, that it's kind of the course of, of, of media, right? Which is the bundling and then unbundling and rebundling of services, right? Uh, and I think that we've we've gone through this exercise very recently of this uh, great unbundling, right? And we're continuing to see pay TV subscriber declines. We're seeing people migrate into these you know, direct-to-consumer a la carte options. But navigating them is, is really just difficult. And more importantly, winning you know the habits of consumers is more difficult than that. Uh, and that's what we really hope to be able to do for our partners is, is to elevate their presence within those daily rituals and routines. It's Instead of just going to Netflix and going to Amazon and then maybe Disney Plus if you have kids and family and, and maybe HBO Max and US if you're an urban sophisticate, and then trying to navigate the rest of it with all the friction points. I mean, I'm sure you experience this. I know I experienced in my own household where you're like, oh, that's a show I do want to watch, but I don't know if I want to subscribe to this service. I don't know what else is in there. So maybe I don't want to do that. And then then I had to figure out actually how to cancel it once I've actually started the show I wanted to watch because now I know my credit card statement's going to be, you know, a, a mess. Um, and we're trying to say, listen, let's aggregate all that one place, create something that's seamless for consumers to discover the content, and then work with our partners to help them build that mind share. One of the things we 
saw out of the, you know, my experience, I was part of the original Hulu investment team on the Disney side, uh, but also ran research for ABC. And while when we did that deal with Hulu, our ABC business continued to grow in, in absence of Hulu. But the reality is, is that Hulu contributed significantly to where we were growing because consumers could spend more time, discover more things um, and keep that engagement on that platform. And that's, that's hopefully what we can do for our partners. I mean, as we're talking to our partners, our goal is not to cannibalize their businesses at all. Like they, nobody knows their consumer better than they know their consumer. Our goal is really to sort of grow the overall pie for these aspirational tier one, tier two, and tier three providers, right? So we're really just trying to help build the market really and not take away from it. So that's really the intention as we're working with these partners. Um, did you conduct any market research prior to deciding to set up Stream? Well, I would say that all four of us have been in this business for many, many, many years, right? So we have looked at a lot of research over our, our lifetime, our careers with this. And, you know, we we do track research that's happening in the marketplace and what we're seeing, how we're see how consumers are speaking to, you know, the fatigue that they're feeling, the overwhelmed feeling that they have. I mean, I think that we all feel it. It is to what Paul said. It's like, you want to watch the show, but you already are part of several different services and that you have to track whether you want to cancel it or you forget that you've had it. And so I think that there is that real need in the marketplace. And we do look at the research that we see either from LEK or for Nielsen or Parks Associates. Like we we are absolutely enmeshed and immersed in all of the research that's happening. And what I think is really interesting too is that we're borrow we're lending from models that consumers uh, have an understanding of, right? So uh, whether that is looking at class pass and, and kind of the aggregation of, of gyms, right? And managing that into a credit-based service on the SVOD side, but it's also even in the gaming world, right? The use of credits to be able to kind of drive at, um, you know, getting the, new, the next you know feature within the player game and whatever it may be. So we kind of know, we see the advent of these models and are looking to port some of those, those pieces of the model that we believe are successful into this environment within Stream. Could you explain how it will actually look? Well, we, we haven't given a preview of our of our product yet. So, um, but if you you know the best way to describe it, right, just a, from a description level, is that once you come into you know and, and subscribe to a, a package, right, within our service, you can then we lean into brands and showcase the brands that are available within the, within the service and in, and the content that's within, right, and that's really where you have the ability to kind of very seamlessly discover, understand how you're going to like use your your subscription to be able to view and consume content. So that's that's the majority of kind of the navigational elements. What you'll see within our environment is that you're going to you're going to see that we have a deep level personalization. So we'll know exactly how to make what is, you know, most pertinent to you available right at the, as you come into the screen um, so that we can kind of service those things that match and marry very well and, and continue to refine those models as we see more interactions on our platform. Um, I was just wondering, have you hired anyone yet? <laughs> we have. We are working with um, some really incredible talent. Our platform, we're working with our platform provider, developer, who is obviously providing a lot of the resources in building our backend systems. You know, in terms of like where, what's important to us, right? Number one is engineering. And we got a great, you know, you saw an announcement with First Light and Microsoft, uh, and that helps us scale very quickly and leverage some of the best available technology in the marketplace. 
Um, and then in, in fundamentally some of the best engineering resources too. Then there's a secondary piece, right? Which is we, we have to build out like our, you know, the content, uh, essentially work with our partners. Like we want to be a partner friendly service. And so we're leaning into that in terms of experiences, how we actually think about them playing an important role in surfacing the opportunities within our stream environment. Like that's something that we believe as programmers, there's part of it, part of it's what a recommendation engine and an algorithm can deliver. But part of it's just knowing kind of what's coming up and what are brands serving up and what are the, what's important, where are they spending their marketing dollars and how can we work with them in our environment to highlight the opportunity. And so that's a very important focus for us uh, in terms of the kind of the investment that we're making in people. Do you have a, um, a launch date yet? We are launching in spring of 2021. And do you know which markets you will launch in first and why? We are um, launching in the US first and it is really, I mean, this is the market that um, we know the best and well, And but our intentions are much grander than that. We will absolutely be launching internationally quickly after our launch. So, But the first territory is going to be in the US. And many of our partners are looking for us to help them, you know, help in that environment. And that's the wonderful thing is like, you know, they see the problem is not just a US issue, it's a, it's a global issue. And so we can solve for that, some of that collectively. There doesn't seem to be a programming team in place yet. I just wondered whether you whether you had plans to assemble one. Yeah, so that's going back to some of the discussions on the hiring, like that is a, a very important piece in terms of where we're spending our investing in people. Because we, you know, like I said, like you can do so much with algorithms. And then we think that there's a very important role that humans, human curatorial aspects can play as well. Yeah, you, you definitely need that human touch. And, and, you know, we come from brands where the brand and the curation and that piece of it, the programming is, is critically important. So we absolutely understand the importance of that. And, and as Paul said, we will be building a team around that to help because algorithms are algorithms, but you do need that touch, that high touch. And do you plan to launch Stroom's own branded channels as well as third party ones? Well, I mean, right now we're absolutely focused on our partners and building our partners' brands. You know, one of the things that we're keenly focused on is brands. Again, getting on the other side of the table and coming from these large brands, we know the value of a brand. And so we are highly focused on supporting and building the brands of our content partners. And the most important thing, there's there's so much content that's sitting within our partner brands, right? That's the most, you know, the most important thing we can do is create the opportunity for them. That, that success breeds success. Can you announce any of your partners yet? We will, but we're not announcing them yet. And I would say at the same time, like we're, we just want to make sure that when we do make the announcements that we have the opportunity to work with all our partners to amplify the message around the opportunity. And that takes some time and orchestration, right? So we'll, we'll be there soon with the deals that we have and those that are there. We're currently in process of closing. There'll be uh, a lot of content available, a, a wide breadth of different genres and content types as well uh, that really just hopefully, you know, drive an engagement and discovery, you know, vehicle through stream. Brilliant. I was going to say, is there any particular genre or, you know, content areas that you're particularly looking to pick up or you just, or, you know, is there a particular demographic that you want to be watching stream or is it for everyone? I would say, you know, outside of the big five, right, there's a tremendous amount of content and there's a ton of brands, right, where, you know, Parks and Associates was tracking nearly 300 brands at the end of last uh, last year. Um, most 
most certainly, you know, we we fish where we know where we 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 fish first where we know the relationships and we built the relationships. Um, I will say, as a function of some of our announcement very recently, we've also had a lot of outreach from other partners also coming to to us to say how can we can work together and, and expand that. Um, and then as as we fill in those buckets, right, we're very conscious of like have we missed a demographic, have we missed a genre, have we missed uh, a key partner or brand that we feel would be you know our consumers would enjoy, and we we focus on that from as a, from a team basis and prioritization. But it's a uh, it all kind of falls into place right over time and you and you have to constantly evaluate like what are the pieces you're missing um but we you know i will say uh we were lauren and i got to present some of those brands to our our board last week you know in the last few weeks and as we think about the content genres i think we everybody felt we've done a really great job of the expansiveness of the offering for consumers i just wondered what your views are on the future of streaming i mean you can see how you know the adoption rate of streaming services has just grown you know year over year you know and and cord cutting also has in, increased. So obviously we're, you know, we're betting on this market and people are looking for more and more content and, and more and more niche content that really serves their needs. And so, you know, we feel like this market has incredible opportunity worldwide growth. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're absolutely, we're there with them. Yeah. There's a very big market to attack. And the question is, is like, um, I think if you were to look at digital TV research or otherwise, right, you're seeing those forecasts, still see it a high degree of concentration among the big three on a global basis, especially outside of China. And what we want to do is, you know, one of the things I, I guess say stepping back is like what part of Hulu when we made that initial investment back in 2009 was we knew that in solving consumer friction points, we could not only kind of the grow the market share, right? Uh, but we could also grow the market size. And I think that's really what we see is, is if we can, we can get this right for our partners, we can help accelerate and, and add to the story of how much, you know, the opportunity is sitting within the streaming universe. There is, as you said, a lot of fatigue <laughs> who to subscribe to what to watch do you think that's true that it is too fragmented well i think that is the problem that we're solving right if there is a lot of fragmentation and by aggregating we're helping to solve that problem of fragmentation so um we absolutely believe as you know we've said earlier that you know the value really is in the aggregation of, of pulling these services together and introducing new and undiscovered content and brands to consumers. The other thing with the streaming world is that obviously viewer numbers have shot up because various parts of the world have been in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think streamers will be able to hold on to their audiences? Do you think that viewer numbers will suddenly drop once people have their freedoms again? And is this a, a concern for that particular space? Um, I think that um, I'm sure Paul has a lot, you know, a view on this as well, of course. But I, I feel that, you know, what we've seen in the pandemic is that people have absolutely Absolutely increased their consumption and their adoption of streaming services. I do think, though, that with the economic pressures of tracking how many services that they have, that we'll see people reduce the number of services that they have. And that's where I really feel like we sit inside of that aggregation service. I mean, the value that we are bringing to the table is a little different. So if you have like 10 streaming services, it's well over $100 a month. And what we're saying is people tend to sample content they come in they're you know they use their free trials and then they turn out as Paul said they you know they forget about it what we're really providing not only is the value of the service but also giving the consumer the opportunity to sample and then decide if they want to have that service and what we're really bringing to the content provider is a different type of consumer right they have their niche they have their consumer that they are driving towards and we're bringing them a different almost like 
like a light and occasional user of their content. So we really believe that we're providing that value in the marketplace to the consumer as as those economic pressures are pushing on having all of these services. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think that um, never underestimate how much consumers will spend on content, on entertainment and content, right? Uh, I mean, and here in the US, people had very large paid TV bills and then they've added on SVOD services and then gaming and then any number of others. I will say that, you know, we're leaning into the headwinds, right? Which is, you know, people are migrating out of, you know, very large non-customized uh, bundles in the MVPD universe into uh, more of a uh, an a la carte type environment. But that requires, it still requires time and attention and resources to get, you know, the those consumers. And we think that the stream proposition can help those parties in that outside of the big five here in the U.S. and maybe big three globally uh, to grab that share and attention. I also think that when we think about, you know, the, the challenge right now, I think, you know, personally, and it's always a matter of like timing, is uh, there's a number, you know, a number of services, all, all everybody achieved their 2025 goals in 2020 for their SVOD service because so many people were sitting at home, right? And so if you look at yourself relative to just your goal that you goal you set forth in your business plan, you're going to be like, I won, right? But the reality is, is that Disney added 84 million subs last year. Well, everybody else added a couple hundred thousand here across all these respective services, right? And so what we're hoping to be able to do is to help them get to a better place where they can compete uh, with the likes of those big three, right, in terms of scale and tech and data and, and personalization uh, through the stream product. Right. Um, and the other thing I wanted to touch upon is that content owners are going direct to consumer consumers now. Um, is this a threat or, a, or an opportunity? So uh, I think that actually, I don't, we don't see it as a threat. We think that there's multiple front doors uh, to and to some of these services and, and we're, you know, uh, partnerships are going to be struck across. Uh, we believe that the ultimately the the simplicity of the business model, uh, the ease of use for a consumer, and the, the value and aggregation will play a, a very big role in the ecosystem. And we too will look at for partnerships that that help expand the overall footprint and opportunity for the services that we're carrying on stream. I mean, it makes sense for people to to find other distribution partners. It absolutely makes sense for them, right, for their business to survive. So, you know, for us, again, it's really like, how do we expand that market across the board for content providers? And is there a particular reason? you chose to launch Stream now? How long has it been in the making? We have been talking about this for, you know, well over a year. I think the timing is right. You know, going back to looking at what's happening in the marketplace, looking at the research, working in this space for as many years as we've all worked in it. You know, for us, the timing is right right now. Given what you're seeing with consumers and how they're consuming content and the need for more content, we're at the cross-section of that at this moment in time. Yeah, and I, I would just add to the fact that on top of like what is, you know, clearly on, on a market level, right, we see that there's a demand for such services. And part of it's also the fact that we just have an incredible team. And sometimes it's about putting the team in the right place at the right moment, too. Uh, and I think that when you look across the experience that Lauren, Eugene, Thomas, and myself bring, coupled with the experience of our uh, advisors and Nancy Tellum and Ben Pine and Donald Hicks and uh, investors like uh, Michael Eisner and Andy Redman with Ternante, I mean, we, we've tried to put together a team that kind of understands brands, understands the landscape, and fundamentally tries to solve consumer friction points. And, and that's part of the magic of where we're at in this moment. Lauren de Villiers and Paul Pastor from Stream. Mark Oliver is chairman at media, entertainment and sports advisory firm Oliver Olbaum Associates. The London-based consultancy has worked with over 200 organisations since it was founded, with a focus on content owners, brands, investors and regulators in the UK, Europe and further afield. 
Oliver spoke with Karolina Kaminska about what outcome broadcasters could face from the challenges presented by COVID and streaming, why the distribution sector might go from boom to bust in 2023, and why things will get worse before they get better. So, Mark, with the UK now back in lockdown, and of course other countries around the world are also in their own lockdowns, what impact is this having on development and production, but also on broadcasting and distribution? The biggest effect on broadcasting and distribution, I suspect, would be the potential for another downturn in advertising revenue. That's the biggest economic effect on the broadcasters and their ability to commission, how much they can spend. Obviously, beyond that, they need to think again about their schedules and the need for acquired material versus originated commissions, given problems in the production pipeline. That's mostly a logistical issue. I guess there's a kind of cumulative effect the more lockdowns they are, the more threadbare the schedules could become if new productions aren't coming through. For producers, I think it's just, I think they've, they learned to adapt for the first, after the first lockdown. The provision of insurance from the government helped. That was the biggest blockage on going into production for smaller indies. Some ways, larger producers can almost self-insure. They're large enough to carry the risk themselves, but small ones can't. And I suspect they've adapted many methods to make programs in ways that are compliant and will continue to do so. I suspect some big projects, more complex projects, have probably been put on hold. So I would say a mixed bag. I think the production sector, as long as it can get the insurance and find ways of working which are compliant, can muddle through. And broadcasters can muddle through as long as the the use of archive doesn't continue for too long, as long as their advertising revenue doesn't go through another severe drop. Pay TV broadcasts, it's more complicated. The the lockdown, as we know, has led to a boost into the take-up of SFOD services. So that's a benefit to them. The fact there's a shortage of new content coming through might eventually be a problem. For pay TV platforms, it might have accelerated the cord cutting or cord shaving, but they're, they're already dealing with that. So um, all of this is just fast forwarding. Um, some trends were happening already, plus a bit of a pause in production, plus a, a short a possible double dip recession in advertising. So it's difficult people muddling through, but I think that's exactly what they have to do. And um, sports events that were cancelled last year, like the Olympics, for example, are eagerly anticipated to go ahead this year instead but that might not turn out to be the case. And that's something that a lot of broadcasters are really looking forward to in the hope that they'll be able to pick up from from where they left off. What impact on TV would further potential disruption to the sports calendar have? How is that going to affect all of those involved, broadcasters in particular? Well, I think for the big international events, such as the Olympics or the Euros, I think that's, again, that's a free-to-air broadcaster issue, mostly. And not having those special events that bring bring in content, new content, and bring in new advertisers, incremental advertising revenue is a blow because they have to fill the hole in the schedule. That's difficult when you're not getting more originations coming through, so it will mean more recycling of content. And in terms of advertising revenue, the recession plus the absence of those bits of content that can bring in new advertisers is doubly impactful. Of course, a lot depends on whether it's they're delayed for yet another year or just cancelled. And it looks like both the Olympics and Euros, if they can't go ahead next year, won't go ahead at all. So they've just missed that big output and revenue opportunity. And that's problematic. So I think that's the, the major problem if they're completely cancelled, plus they're already going through an advertising recession uh, and a lack of new content coming through. It can just compound the problems this summer, which is just a general thing that these things always get worse before they get better. When you see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's usually it's usually a large, big, black ditch in front of you, um, which is um, what you're about to step into because it gets worse before it gets better. And I think there might be a bit of that if the sports events are cancelled, uh, especially the free-to-air broadcasts who depend upon those major, big events. For all the other sports, obviously, it's mostly a pay TV impact in terms of output. And again, I think not having those might increase
these increased churn in their business and the need to pay subscribers back again if they didn't actually occur at all. Um, but most of those regular league calendars have gone ahead. They may just be foreshortened or shifted around. It's the it's the major major biannual quadrennial events, which if they don't go ahead next year, having been cancelled from last year, they're basically not going to go ahead at all. And that's just a big net loss to the TV industry. What do you think the long-term effects would be on broadcasters then if um, they do experience big drops in advertising revenue again and if they continue to have uh, gaps in their schedules because of production delays and because of sports events being cancelled? What, what will the outcome be for broadcasters? Well, the financial effect, of course, if they can't cut their costs at the same rate as their revenue is declining, they will either make less profits or make a loss and that loss then has to be financed. It's a loss to someone, shareholders. Obviously, with public broadcasters with licensing, that's different. They don't necessarily miss out on income. The commercial broadcasters, they do. But actually, because it's um, because it's affecting everybody, there is a sense in which they won't necessarily lose market share between each other because they're all having to deal with this. Clearly, if one broadcaster has big sports events and one doesn't, then the one that has the big sports events loses out more than the other if they cancel. But I think generally what they're doing is they're trying to, they can protect share. In some ways, more people are viewing the lockdown-ish. They've got less revenue, so the finances are problematic, but they're not necessarily going to lose market share against each other because they're all doing it. Whether they will lose further market share against SFODs, probably because the SFODs, the acceleration of SFOD take up because of demand for more choice, people having more time, uh, means that there's an acceleration in it in the decline of traditional broadcast outlets. So that's probably a longer term thing. The short term thing is a financial problem. If they can't cut their costs as fast as their revenue is declining, then they're going to go into deficit probably and they'll need to refinance that in some way. In the past year has also seen the rise of, well, it's it's given rise to huge growth in AVOD and SVOD streaming, providing another big challenge to the broadcasters. What does that mean for the broadcasters and, and traditional players? Well, AVOD's complicated because part of the AVOD market, a large part of the AVOD market of the broadcasters themselves, shifting their output from linear to on-demand, either in their own services or as part of aggregated services. So in that sense, the move to AVOD, the big question is, does it actually grow the advertising pile? Does it just substitute one for the other? If it substitutes one for the other, well, the broadcaster's got a lower share of AVOD than they do of linear TV, so there will be a slight reduction or dampening down of their revenue uh, share. Of course, the growth of AVOD beyond broadcasters is similar to the same threat that basic tier pay TV was to broadcasters for many years. And in some ways, it's replacing it. So the real question is, do any of those players have the critical mass and scale and reach to challenge the main broadcasters for their advertising premium? And does the ability to address advertising and target it on AVOD platforms level up the playing field between the broadcasters and the and the independent AVOD players? That, that's less clear. It's still the case that broadcasting VOD tends to get higher CPMs than non-broadcast independent AVOD. So the advertisers are still spending more of their money on the traditional broadcasts in AVOD, not just linear. As long as that holds, then the effect shouldn't be too much. If AVOD gives new players more critical mass, increases the move to addressable targeted advertising where there's more of a level playing field between the broadcasters and the new players, that could accelerate their competitive pressure. But that's yet to be seen. The broadcasters still get CPM premium in the AVOD market and addressable targeted advertising still, I think, sells a premium on a broadcast outlet versus independent outlet. Well, that, that's to be questioned. Or, or, or is that more a level playing field? I mean, SPOD is in direct effect on the main broadcasters because it's not a revenue challenger, it's an audience challenger. I think one of the biggest effects of SFOD is, is how it affects audience expectations, what they expect to have they see the content on free-to-air broadcasters versus SFOD players. And obviously some of the broadcasters have their own SFOD plans, national champion SFODs like Britbox or Salto or so on. So it's quite complicated.
because it depends how successful their own ventures are in Avon and Esford and how far the rise of Avon and Esford actually compounds the economic problems by levelling up the playing field between themselves and, and new players. So it's quite a complex picture about whether that's an extra pressure on them and how long it might take to have an impact. Another type of streaming that has emerged recently is the free ad-supported streaming television channels, otherwise known as fast channels. How do these channels change the game? What threats and or opportunities do they pose for the wider industry? Well, I see the definition of fast is it's a catch-all title that includes broadcast the VOD, other TV VOD, and players like YouTube, basically web players who have video. So it's not a new, it's not a different market. It's just a catch-all title for all those things put together. And again, in the sense that there's a leveling up of the web-based video advertising and the TV-based video advertising, where the latter sold at a premium to the former, that could be a problem for TV because if it creates a single market where 30 seconds of viewing on YouTube is seen as equivalent to 30 seconds of viewing on all four, then there's a problem because that then means there'll be a, a convergence of the price. And the convergence of the price usually means broadcast the prices will go down. So the growth of fast, if it is becoming a single market bought by advertisers uh, as a single market, probably a problem for broadcasters in keeping their CPMs high. I don't currently think it is. I think they're still bought separately. Fast just reflects the fact that maybe viewers don't know the difference as things like YouTube come onto the app screen of Sky. Maybe there's not too much difference. At the moment, economically, they work as separate sub-segments of the market. And as long as that happens, broadcasts are fine. If that starts to erode, that really is quite a long-term problem. And meanwhile, many of the major studios which have launched their own streaming services are retaining content for their own platforms. How is that affecting the distribution sector? Well, obviously, if if more global rights deals are being done effectively by maintaining them on the, the streaming platforms, and the amount of te- material available to national broadcasts and national platforms brought in from America or other markets is going to shrink in quantity and probably quality. In the short term, that can lead to a spike in prices because people still need to fill their schedules. There's less supply available, so which is good for distributors in some ways. The ones that have content will see a spike. And that plus the COVID spike, because people needed to fill their schedules quickly, probably is leading to a bit of a golden period in program distribution. But it may be a sign of the opposite happening, which is as broadcasters adjust to the slowing of pipeline of content through the system, as the COVID effect basically reduces as we eventually recover from this and new production, you'll probably find the boom in program sales will be followed by a slump. Not unusual, but that you can see how those things would conspire to create a very good 220-221, but a problematic 223. What 22-22 is like is different because that depends how long we take to emerge from this and how quickly the pipeline dries up. And we've also seen some of the major studios skipping theatrical windows due to the pandemic Mm -hmm. and putting films that would have premiered in cinemas straight onto their own platforms. What effect does that have on distribution? Well, the key question here is... How does the income they earn by substituting the cinema window with a, a kind of T-Bod pay window on TV? How does that affect the economics, which is part of the film economics? And, and that's partly about what the revenue is, how many people take it, what they pay, but also what the net revenue is, what, what the share of the platforms are taking versus what share the cinemas took. I haven't looked at this. I suspect that some films are more, more or less revenue neutral because although cinemas brought more gross revenue in, their share of that revenue was smaller. But I haven't looked at individual titles, what they would have been 
made or what they have made. Clearly, the gross revenue of the film industry is shrinking. You know, people don't spend uh, as much watching a video on TV. And also, there's, for example, if a family of four goes to the cinema, they pay for four tickets. So in London, you can pay over 50 quid. If you're doing it on a pay-per-play basis on Sky, you're probably not paying 50 quid for that. You're paying 13. So if the studio got 40 or 50% of that 50 quid, 25 quid, 20 quid, there's no way that a like-for-like exchange of TVOD for studio would make the same amount of money because, say, 15 quid, even if they get two-thirds of that, that's 10 quid versus 20 quid. However, TVOD may have grown the market. We don't know whether more people watch it on TVOD than the cinema. I think the long-term effect, of course, if a, pro- if a film hasn't been in the cinema and got all that marketing push behind it, there may be a slight problem as we look at the subsequent windows. Those films just aren't as well-known because they haven't gone for the usual cinema promotion cycle. So even if the short-term revenue effect to film is neutral, it could be the long-term effect may take a long time to unwind because there was a series of films that launched into 2021, which then go into pay TV and archive, etc. And less people have heard of them. So it may be harder for them to get an audience from day one because they aren't known. On the other hand, less people have seen them. But I'd say the promotional effect probably dominates. Some films that have gone straight to video haven't had the razzmatazz that the, 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 the cinema release creates. You can see the studios are working on that. Lots of talk shows, etc. have people on who are with films that have been released on Netflix rather than released on the cinema. They're trying to get the promotional effect, but it doesn't have the same effect, I don't think. In the COVID world, we've seen industry events like MIPTV, MIPCOM, NAPI all moving online. What does that mean for broadcasters and distributors? And do you think that these events will remain online going forward or do you think they'll return to physical markets? I think there will be a return to physical markets, but I think what is done at physical markets is what can't be done online. Whereas previously what was done online was what couldn't be done at physical markets. So there's a complete switchover of the priorities. So physical markets will have to justify their added value to just transactions and it will accelerate kind of polarization in the way the market is operates. There'll be more non-physical transactions being done, facilitated by platforms that can provide secure transactions, which is not an easy thing, but that's where distributed ledger technology, otherwise known as Bitcoin, comes in. But um, yeah, there will be markets. People want to meet, they want to talk, but they'll be much more focused on broader relationships than actual transactions. They already are, but I think there'll be even more and less people will go, I suspect, and get the huge teams going. Although in some cases, that's given as a kind of benefit in kind to staff. <laughs> so there's always that part of it. But a shift, not, not not the death, but a shift. And so what other issues, threats or opportunities do you think that the industry will face this year in 2021 and beyond? I think we cover most of them. Yeah, the long-term threats to national broadcasters, etc., challenges to them have just been accelerated. So the biggest challenge is the acceleration of change, I would guess. And also, there are these short-term challenges where things flip, right? So I said that the programme sales market is going for a boom, but then may go for a bust. I said that when people will see the light at the end of the tunnel, that could be the worst period because things will get worse before they get better. So people think they're coming out of it, but just as they are, things get worse again. I think it's dealing with the acceleration of long-term change plus the kind of duality of the next 24 months of things that just flip around quite quickly, which this is kind of a pace of change people aren't always used to. And that's a management challenge as well as just a challenge of how you piece together your company again in terms of relationships and working together when everybody's been apart for a year and got into new habits and getting people into work or not, deciding how they're going to work in the future. That's that's a particularly organisational challenge, which I think people will have to face coming out of COVID. We're all obviously living in very challenging times. So what advice would you give to producers, networks, platforms and distributors in order to survive? Well, the, the catch-all title is learn to be flexible, expect the unexpected, build your organisation so it can deal with those things. I think, I think everybody 
everybody faces challenges from this. I've just I've listed all of them in your questions, but sort of generically, there's there's a challenge of dealing with fast change, dealing with almost opposite changes, direction and change in very short periods. You know, it's just like the seas get very choppy, so you've got to you've got to steer your boat quite carefully. That I suspect is the truth for everybody. Long term, of course, there's the there's the national broadcasters and producers securing a niche in a more globalized world, but I think that's just a long term thing. In some ways, producers are better prepared for that than, than broadcasters. That's just an acceleration. I think organizationally, the challenges are to be flexible and to deal with a pace of change that is different from than the past. Mark Oliver from Oliver and Oldbaum Associates, talking with Carolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.